One, two. Clamps. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Um, my name is Eilish, and myself and Niall are volunteering, and we're your room managers today if you have any questions for us. Um, so just make sure you're at the right session. First of all, very important. Um, your fire exit is out to the right-hand side the way you came in. In the event of an emergency, um, you should head to the nearest fire exit, which in the arts block is down the main steps and out, and the fire meeting point is in the front square by the bell tower. Um, you probably know by now where the nearest bathrooms are, but as you exit, you'll see a big B on a stairwell outside, and the first floor is where you'll find the nearest bathrooms, and the nearest wa water fountain is outside as well. Um, the next item on the programme is the AGM. For, so for those of you attending that at 4.15. It's taking place in the Edmund Burke Theatre. Um, and that's it. I'll hand over to the chair. Thank you. Yes. Uh, everyone can hear me? Everyone in the back? Yeah, great. Uh, so, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Matthias Frosteros uh, from the National Library of Finland uh, and I'll be I'll be chairing this session uh, Unlocking Data, Exploring Different Roads and uh, First of all, I would like to congratulate all of you for choosing, choosing this session, as we will have a trio of, of terrific presentations. Uh, as befits the team, uh, exploring different roads, we will kind of head down three different roads here. Uh, we will have uh, um, presentations uh, ranging from, from uh, knowledge maps to uh, interlinking data to, to data mining. So, so lots of different approaches, very exciting. Uh, yeah, so without, without further ado, I will uh, introduce the first, uh, first uh, presentation and, and the two speakers. So the first presentation is called uh, Open Knowledge Maps, a visual interface to the world's scientific knowledge. Uh, it will be about how to uh, this uh, novel uh, solution uh, on how to get an overview uh, of a research topic. Uh, and it will be presented by uh, pr uh, Peter Krecker uh, from the Open Knowledge Maps uh, Austria and Najme uh, Shagai from the University Library of Southern Denmark. So please, go ahead. <coughs> All right, uh, welcome from our side. Uh, thanks for the nice introduction. Really happy to talk to you about open knowledge maps today. And I'd like to start off somewhere entirely different to this lecture hall. I want to start off in West Africa. And in West Africa, we saw between 2014 and 2016 the worst outbreak of Ebola in human history. And uh, it claimed the lives of more than 11,000 people. And it hit three of the poorest countries in the world, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia. And one of the most tragic facts about this epidemic is that it could actually have been prevented. And it could have been prevented using public scientific knowledge. Because one of the biggest problems back in 2014 was that the public health officials around the world assumed that Ebola was not endemic to West Africa, so that it doesn't occur there. And that's why it took so long for countermeasures to be put in place and for them to take effect. And that's why so many people died. But as the New York Times found out in 2015, yes, we were warned about Ebola, and we were warned about Ebola in research papers. The authors of this article, they went through the literature and they found, for example, this statement. The results seem to indicate that Liberia has to be included in the Ebola virus endemic zone. 
And this caused a lot of dismay with the authors of this article, not because of the content of the statement, but when it was published in 1982, more than 30 years before the catastrophe. So ample time to put countermeasures into place. And this was not the only statement that the authors found. They found several research papers throughout history that had stated the very same fact. And I want to point out this is not a problem of accessibility because the affected countries, they have access to these research papers through programs such as Research for Life. And the big international organizations like the World Health Organization or uh, Institut Pasteur, they have subscriptions to the relevant journals. So this is not a problem of accessibility. This is a crisis of discoverability. And the authors of this article agree, and they conclude with a statement from public health. The road to inaction is paved with research papers. So I think we all feel a little bit like this poor person here. We're just swamped with the literature. 2.5 million research papers are published each year and counting. And that makes it really hard to get an overview of a scientific field. And once you have it, to then keep it. And all of this is corroborated by the facts. We have a high unsightedness of publications between 12 and 82%, depending on the field. Gets worse when we come to data sets. So this is a piece of research that I was involved in myself. And we found that up to 85% of research data sets are never cited. And it also affects the transfer to practice. Because even in an application-oriented discipline such as medicine, only a small amount of research ever gets used in clinical practice, and if so, with a considerable delay. And one of the reasons why we have a crisis of discoverability is the tools that we're using to find scientific literature. Because search engines, they still reign supreme, and Google Scholar is king among them. But how do you actually get an overview of a scientific field using Google Scholar? Most people do is that they turn to the interface, they type in the name of the field, for example, educational technology, and then they get hundreds of thousands, if not millions of results. Since you cannot read 2.5 million papers, you turn to a highly cited overview work, go through this one, go through the references, maybe also look into the cited file. And with time and patience, you can then build a mental model of the field. That is, you know the most important topics, the most important authors, the most important publications. But the downside of this strategy is, of course, that it takes a long time, weeks, if not months, before the mental model emerges. And this is time that we don't have when disaster strikes. This is actually time that we never have, unless it's maybe the first year of the PhD or so. And that's why I think we cannot leave it to Google or the other big commercial players out there to fix the discoverability crisis, because they haven't innovated in this space. The tools basically are the same as they were in 2004, 15 years ago. But since then, the literature has doubled twice. So we have now four times as much scientific knowledge. And for that, the list-based search engines are not enough anymore. And there is a growing community, a community of researchers, tool makers, and open infrastructure that recognizes this problem and wants to provide an open science solution for the discoverability crisis. And one of these organizations is Open Knowledge Maps. So we are a charitable nonprofit organization. We're headquartered in Vienna, in Austria. And we're de dedicated to dramatically improving the visibility of scientific knowledge. And we want to do that for science, but also for the other stakeholders in society. 
think about the public health officials or journalists or fact checkers, citizen scientists. They really don't have a way into scientific knowledge right now. And what we propose is to use knowledge maps for discovery. They have a number of advantages over a list-based search in that they provide you the main areas at a glance. So in this example, for heart diseases, you have risk factors, types of diseases, and prevention. And you have relevant resources already attached to these sub-areas. So you can get immediately started. From the theory to the practice, you can go to our website, openknowledgemaps.org, and create a knowledge map of your own. We have two integrations. Just get me in, let me get this video started. Oh yeah, so we have two integrations. One of them is PubMed, the big database in the life sciences with a focus on biomedical research, and BASE, the Bielefeld Academic Search Engine, which harvests over 140 million scientific outputs, so you can search really in any discipline. And then you can type in a name of an area or a topic, for example, digital education, and we will then create a knowledge map for you. And as you can see, it looks very similar to the example that I showed you. The bubbles represent the sub-areas. So for example, up here we have education systems, we have education policy, or digital literacy. And once you've identified an area that you want to get familiar with, then, for example, this one on digital competencies, you simply zoom into it, and you can inspect the relevant resources that are attached to it. You can uh, inspect the metadata, also read the abstract, <coughs> and if it's an open access paper like this one, you can read the whole paper within the same interface. So the idea here is really that you don't have to leave the browser tab for discovery. The advantages that we see is that you can get this bird's eye view of a field, can identify relevant concepts. For example, if you didn't know that digital literacy was connected to digital education, now you do. And that's sometimes the hardest step in each discovery process. Which words are you actually going to input into the search engine? And then you can also sort the relevant from the <coughs> irrelevant, always, of course, corresponding to your information need. So if you're only interested in digital competencies, you can stay within that bubble in the beginning and then branch out only later. And finally, Open Knowledge Maps is an interface over all scientific knowledge, open and closed. But we will make it very easy to get to the open content, and we also offer additional services for it. So for example, we have implemented Hypothesis as an annotation tool for the open access papers on our platform. We're open science all the way. I've been open science activist for a long time, and many people on the team have as well. So this is really at the heart and the core of open knowledge maps. All of our maps are CC BY. All of our data, so the underlying structures that we create are CC0 in the public domain. All of our software is open source and licensed under MIT, available on GitHub. And we're also working towards participatory development. And one of these steps is that we have an open roadmap, which you can view and annotate. And many of you have already used this opportunity until now. With this approach, we've become the largest visual search engine for research in the world. In the first two and a half years, we had over half a million uh, visitors uh, visits on the website. More than 100,000 maps were created. 
And we're also giving a lot of workshops and trainings. Nashmi will talk about this in a little while. And we had uh, over 1,500 people in these events. When I say we, I mean a core team of dedicated, mostly volunteers. And I'm very happy that we also have an organization member mm -hmm. in the No Center, which is my previous organization, a research center for big data at Graz University of Technology. And recently, we were also very happy to welcome our first supporting member, the Ludwig Boltzmann Gesellschaft. We also found many advisors from the open science world, and many people up here you will recognize because they're also at this conference, right? So we're very happy to be advised by Natalia Manola, Klaus Dochtermann, Bertil Dorch, and Birgit Schmidt, and many others that have strong ties to the library world and are librarians at heart. And we also found many partners from the open science and open knowledge world because we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We see ourselves as a building block. We want to reuse other people's work and to give back to the community as well. And together, I think we're now making up something that I would call the open discovery infrastructure in that we have institutions, researchers, and publishers, and they contribute to libraries, archives, repositories, and aggregators. There's one distinct difference now between these and Google because they have an open uh, data interface so you can now access and reuse that data. And that is in turn used by the meta aggregators. You will know many of them, OpenAir, CoreBase, or Wikidata. And they harvest all of this data, create massive indices. And these can then be used by the value-added services. There's open knowledge maps, but there's also others like ORCID, Unpayable, Scoria, or ContentMind. And this creates a cycle of continuous innovation because suddenly we can build on top of each other, right? It's not like Google where there is just a wall at the end. No, we can do now something with that data that is completely different from what was maybe originally thought of possible. We can do recommendation, visualization, semantics, all of these things that have been denied to the research world. And so this is the infrastructure for publications. And now we also started a GoFair network on discovery. And you will see that many champions of fair data on board of this, like Cesta, Datasite, um, EUDAT, or OpenAir and Operas. And together, we want to figure out how does this infrastructure look now for datasets and how can we improve the discoverability of datasets. But we're not just a tech organization. And with that, I'd like to hand over to Nashma for the training part. Maybe you can just tip over here, here, Apple Goods here. <laughs> um, first of all, I would um, like just to apologize because of my bad uh, voice and uh, sometimes coughing. It was due to very well warm welcoming um, by Irish weather on Sunday, <laughs> on Sunday and um, Monday when I was just walking between the um, uh, leadership program venue and uh, my hotel and it was a uh, heavy rain and even uh, umbrella couldn't um, protect me so I had a bad feeling sorry for that um, here today I'm presenting two countries if I don't include my homeland also I'm, uh, I'm mainly working at the University of Southern Denmark in Denmark as head of the campus library, but also uh, it's a great honor for me to work 
with Peter and his team uh, at the Open Knowledge Map uh, in Austria as a community coordinator, and, but voluntarily. Um, so um, within these um, past years, uh, actually we, we have successfully established a um, very uh, wide area of uh, engagement and training activity. Uh, we had uh, loads of uh, conference uh, talks and workshops in the conferences, in international conference and in, uh, in research institute and libraries also. And also we had some plenty of uh, webinars around the world. Um, in all those events, we actually focus on um, uh, different aspects of discovery workflow um, uh, depending to the, uh, our stakeholders' um, needs, that who are um, librarians or researchers or students in different uh, level of education. Um, so far, we had averaged 40 training sessions um, per year, which is very good, and we are so happy with that. And we mainly focus on different aspects of uh, discovery workflow, and also um, we try just to focus on functioning and infrastructure of uh, workflow uh, open knowledge maps. And we got a lot of good feedback and input from uh, audience, from participants that they joined the sessions. Recently, we had a, a talk in Vienna University Library and also we had a one webinar with Eiffel, and also we had a talk with Berlin University Library. Um, as Peter mentioned also, the next please, yeah, thank you very much. Um, um, maybe you could just back to the another one, no, it's, it's fine, yeah. This one. Um, in our community uh, program, um, actually, which are, I'm community coordinator, um, we are working with among the other teams that uh, in Open Knowledge Map with uh, Peter and the other colleagues. Um, we have the community program, um, and, and one of the most highlighted uh, programs that we made it is Enthusiast Program. With, uh, we gather a group of uh, volunteers around the world that they work with us as ambassador, uh, and they take the training, online training from us, and we provide all material, all presentation for them, and they, we make them ready just to go to the, their institute and uh, have the presentation and have uh, the introduction of Open Knowledge Map. Um, last year, we had our first iteration, which was a group of six, um, ambassador or enthusiast uh, from Germany, from Boston in USA, from Chile, South Africa, Austria, and Netherlands. Um, we had an online training for them within three months, and we provide all material and information for them, all the, the presentation or a slide, and we give them and we make them ready just to go and uh, organize the workshop about the Open Knowledge Lab in their institute and in their community. And it was really good feedback. We had, we reached around 100 participants just joined the, all those um, workshops from 
six countries in, in four continents in different around the world. And also we have our second iteration now, which is underway, and with a group of five um, guys from Poland, Denmark, Benin, from Africa, Ireland, and also Indonesia. Now, then we, we had the online training for them and we provide all materials. Now we are waiting to give them the presentation um, and provide the presentation for their institute or their community. Um, and also, last, in last iteration, we had luckily two, uh, two of our guys uh, that they are Spanish-speaking language and they helped us just to translate the all material in Spanish language as well. So now we have the all materials in two languages. Um, yes, please, thank you very much. And we have um, very open and easy access all materials in our website, which is, includes some standard presentation in both Spanish and English language. And also we have some material for promotional that you can promote such as poster or stick or whatever that they need for promoting the, the events. And also we have two workshop formats, scavenger hunt and uh, academic SEO, which um, they can choose which format they want just to go uh, for institute. Uh, in, in scavenger hunt is a very fun um, game that we, we play with, uh, with participants and they can just go and improve their literature search skills and also in academic SEO, which is a kind of technical, and they can learn something. All those materials is available on the website and it's open and easy to use. And of course, we have a very strong partnership and collaboration with the, uh, with the, with the library. Um, we all know and do uh, strongly believe that the libraries are providing the exploration and discovery for research and for getting knowledge by researchers and we support the libraries for that and also we use a library content by base. Perhaps you all know that, what, what is the base? And also we increase the visibility of library content as a, um, instead of commercial product that they don't index, for example, the Google Scholar. And also, last but not least, we collaborate with libraries to develop the innovative open source project to make the, the all uh, sources visible. Yeah. Thank you, Nashme. Yes, um, I want to uh, highlight uh, three projects that we did 2018-2019. One is Viper, the Visual Project Explorer, where we partnered up with OpenAir to produce knowledge maps of research project outputs. That gives you a unique picture of the output of research projects instead of just looking dissemination pages. We are also in the current project with the Austrian Academy of Sciences where we're creating a discovery front-end for their early proceedings. And this is a unique project in that it focuses on linked data and it also tries to provide innovative visualization, so we're also developing there an author-based visualization and a timeline visualization. Finally, we also partner with the 
uh, Open Innovation in Science Center of the Ludwig Boltzmann Society. There we are visualizing crowdsourced research questions. So they are now in the second iteration of crowdsourcing research questions in mental health and now incidental injuries. And uh, we then visualize these hundreds of questions that they receive from professionals, but also from the general population. But with these projects, we can only fund a very small part of our activities. And so we've been thinking very hard and long about uh, sustainability at Open Knowledge Maps and we believe that a membership-based funding is the best way forward for a community-owned and community-driven initiative. We propose to fund Open Knowledge Maps in a collective effort. Um, organizations become supporting members sorry, about, uh, of the organization and they provide a yearly contribution. But this is not a one-way street because uh, we invite you to co-create the platform with us. So all of our supporting members, they have a vote with the technical roadmap. So they become directly involved in the decision-making process of which sources and features we will implement. You can find more information on our website. We also have a uh, brand new flyer, which I'm going to put here for you to take. Um, would uh, be very happy to onboard more um, libraries onto the uh, board of Supporters. Um, these are our current rates and if you compare that to a Web of Science or Scopus license you will see that this is only a tiny fraction what you need to do for discovery here. Yeah, um, I would like to conclude with our vision. So what could we do if we were a sustainable organization? And we would like to really turn discovery in a collaborative process because we each have a piece of the puzzle. We have this overview maybe of education and technology of heart diseases, but it's very hard to externalize this knowledge in a structured way. And how we could do this on open knowledge maps, for that we have created a short video. Sarah is a first-year PhD student in biomedicine, starting her thesis on the Zika virus. Open Knowledge Maps has automatically created a map on the Zika virus for her. Sarah identifies a number of articles that were in their own area. So she goes into edit mode. She adds a new area and drags the papers she found into the newly created bubble. She adds a title and places the area on the map. Sarah is interrupted by a message from a supervisor, Lauren. Lauren suggests a presentation related to the Zika virus that she's added to the joint Zotero group. Sarah connects OK Maps to her Zotero account and imports the presentation into her map. OK Maps automatically places the new content on the map. Sarah publishes and tweets the link of her map for other users to explore and modify on OK Maps. The next day, she fires up her email to see that fellow PhD student Amar has added several papers to her map. She also notices that Tom, who's working on a map on Aedes, has included her map as a sub-map of his. Yeah, in making this vision a reality, your support really matters. So please let us know what you think. Um, introduce open knowledge maps to your colleagues and to your students if you think that it would be beneficial for them. And consider becoming a supporting member. With that, I would like to thank Nashme. I would like to also thank Maxi Schramm, who co-created this presentation together with us. And I would like to thank you for your attention, and I'm looking forward to your questions and comments.
Yes. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Peter and Najme, for the very interesting presentation. Uh, do we have any questions from the audience? We have a bit of time for that. Uh, yes. Thank you. Um, I think it's a great idea. I really liked um, the, the, the idea of having that visual rep representation of search results. However, um, I'm just wondering um, what the sort of limitations are on the resources you search. I mean, you mentioned a couple of databases. And I just did a search for a topic I'm interested in, and I got very, very few results. Um, you know, a, a mere fraction of the many resources I know are out there on, on my topic of interest. Yes, so definitely you can search in any discipline, but we don't cover every topic as well as um, others, right? So in your case, you probably found one topic that isn't covered well at this point. And what we're trying to do in Open Knowledge Maps is also to be a catalyst for the open infrastructure because Open Knowledge Maps becomes better every time BASE becomes better, every time the resources that BASE indexes become better. And so we really try to um, drive people to open up their repositories and include them in the open discovery infrastructure because then the end I think we can, up, we, I think we can kind of come up with this complete catalog of outputs. But I agree with you. It's still uh, a way to go. I had a similar question. Um, so so uh, how does the retrieval work that results in the base map? Yes, so um, I have a slide for that. One second, yes. All right, so we get the 100 most relevant documents as defined by base, which defines the uh, relevance as sub subject similarity between your query and the metadata. And then we use the input, these 100 uh, metadata records, to calculate the subject similarity between the papers. And that's then used as the input for the map uh, producing algorithms. Yes. <coughs> Thank you very much. And. Uh, for our next presentation, uh, we will have uh, a local from, from uh, ADAPT Center, uh, Trinity College, uh, Lucy McKenna, uh, who will be uh, telling us about NOSHK, a linked data interlinking framework for information professionals, uh, which is basically uh, 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 a service uh, or a system that uh, allows uh, librarians and, and other uh, information professionals to make their, uh, to, to sort of uh, try to solve the problem of, of making links for their, for their linked data. Uh, yes, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, yeah so thank you. Um, as mentioned, my name's Lucy and I'm a PhD student in the ADAPT Center here in Trinity College, Dublin. Um, so basically, um, my work is to do with uh, libraries and linked data, specifically uh, the interlinking aspect of linked data. Um, so um, why should libraries use linked data? Well, it can improve the discoverability, searchability, and interoperability of library data. And of course, information professionals such as librarians are experts in the field of metadata creation, so they're well positioned to play a leading role in the development of the semantic web. However, um, despite these benefits, um, uptake, uptake of linked data in libraries is relatively slow. 
Um, so part of my research was to investigate why that is and then to focus on one of the problem areas. Um, so this area that I decided to focus on is the interlinking issue. Um, so I've developed a linked data interlinking approach specifically for the library domain um, with the aim of improving linked data interlinking accessibility for information professionals. Um, so just for anyone who's not uh, hugely familiar with the semantic web and linked data, um, the semantic web is an extension of our current web where data is given well-defined meaning and where the relationships between data are defined in a common machine-readable format. And linked data then is a set of best practices for publishing and interlinking structured data on the web. Uh, this includes using URIs as names for entities such as people, places or things um, and structuring the data in RDF format um, and that's triple format where the subject, predicate object and there's a little uh, uh, example there uh, using a Ulysses URI, um, has creator being the predicate and the James Joyce URI being the object. Um, so this is just uh, kind of a little overlook of what the traditional web or current web looks like. So you, here you have your links between your documents um, and then how the semantic web differs is that you have your links between your individual pieces of da data within those documents. Um, so for example here um, you have the book Pride and Prejudice uh, being linked to the URI for its creator and the URI for its subject, just for example. Um, as I mentioned, the area that I'm looking at is linked data interlinking. Um, so that's representing the type of relationship between two entities, specifically two entities um, that are in different data sets. So linking information in your data set, in your library, or your institution, to related data in other institutions. Um, so here we have uh, Pride and Prejudice being linked to uh, the same uh, Pride and Prejudice again in, uh, from the French National Library to a record in the Dutch National Library or the uh, German National Library. Um, and then also being related to similar information um, like the Cambridge Companion to Pride and Prejudice and then also being related to um, it, the film. So you're kind of able, you're enabling your user from just within your institution not only to find the book Pride and Prejudice but to be pointed to, well there's another, here's another institution that has a book about it or here's a film, like you're showing them a whole web of information. Um, relate to what they've been looking for and that's the whole purpose of interlinking is that knowledge discovery aspect. You're not just giving them what they're looking for but you're trying to feed into other things that they might be interested in around the topic that they're looking for. Um, so how did I decide to work on linked data interlinking? Well uh, about a year and a half ago I conducted an online questionnaire with 185 participants who are um, mostly who are information professionals mostly from an academic library uh, perspective um, but also archives and museums and other uh, library institutions. Um, we identified a lot of we, we were investigating what kind of challenges that they were experiencing with linked data. Um, we identified many challenges but some uh, included uh, lack of provenance data available, that the tooling was uh, quite complex, um, that it didn't necessarily meet the requirements of the library um, and that they found um, interlinking and integrating their data uh, to be quite challenging. So. Um, Based on this, I decided to develop a linked data interlinking framework for the library domain um, with a focus on the specific requirements uh, that the information professionals who conducted the survey uh, mentioned. And this included access to authorities and controlled vocabularies, use of library metadata formats um, and link to links to other library data sets. Um, also included provision of provenance data for the interlinks that they generated and uh, being able to um, and using 
uh, creating a graphical user interface that would allow the user to create these interlinks um, in a more user-friendly manner and reduce the need for this expert uh, link data knowledge so they could, of course, spend more time on their data creation expertise and also have a user-centered design, so lots of input from information professionals regarding the design and also lots of user testing. Um, so, based on this, um, I came up with the NOSC interlinking framework. So, NOSC is the Irish word for links, but uh, it also stands for the Novel Authoritative Interlinking of Schema and Concepts. Um, it's a four-step uh, cyclical process, uh, the first being resource selection. So, you select the resource within your uh, institution that you would like to link, and then you choose a number of resources um, from external sources that you would like to link it to. Following this, um, you determine the type of relationship that are between these resources, um, the, and a predicate or a, the link term is recommended to you based on the type of relationship that you've decided is between the resources. Uh, the provenance information about that creation process is generated, um, as is the um, RDF and the graph information. Um, so. Based on this framework, we developed a graphical user interface, as I mentioned, that guides the user through this framework in a, in a user-friendly manner, we hope. Um, so, for example, um, here we have the internal resource um, from um, the National Library of France. It's the short story, The Dead by James Joyce, and interlinking it to... Uh, or it's actually the film about the dead, um, and interlinking it to uh, similar resources um, externally, so one being in Trinity and one being um, an article about the film in New York Times. Um, so um, basically the system helps guide you, um, first using natural language terms, um, what kind of a relationship you want to uh, create between the two, so are the two resources identical, are they similar, um, the degree of relatedness between them. Um, and then based on that decision that you make using the natural language term, um, the system will suggest uh, the type of predicate that you could use to create that RDF statement, um, and then also gives you the opportunity to enter in why you created that link, uh, why those re resources are um, interlinked and why you created the, the relationship between them. Um, the resulting output um, is you have your RDF. Um, so this is the RDF graph. Um, so here you can see the URI for Ulysses, and, and it's linked to um, the Ulysses audiobook and a record for uh, Ulysses uh, theatre production. Um, so here you have a similar two relationship and a uh, Dublin Core relation uh, between the two. Um, so again, your, a lot of the links on the semantic web, or a lot of interlinks on the semantic web at the moment are either um, OWL same as or RDFC also. So this is trying to encourage different types of relationships, different kinds, um, so not as, uh, I suppose, direct as same as, because not everything is the same, and of course not as sort of uh, loose as C also. So trying to create something in between those two, um, which is sort of lacking at the moment. Um, and then the linked data provenance aspect, um, so um, including information on the where, when, why, who, and how a resource was created, of course important for adding to the authoritativeness and trustworthiness um, of information in the library. Um, a lot of linked data tooling at the moment generally just provides the when and maybe the who behind um, what, th how the data was created, but not necessarily all the, uh, the, the why and the where, etc. Um, so that was something that we wanted to work on. 
Um, we used the PROV model as a basis for our provenance graph. Um, the PROV model is a W3C recommended standard for, for creating uh, provenance ontologies. Um, and to that, we added our own extension, so uh, PROVO extension NOSCPROV, um, where I was able to add um, the specific activity of creating an interlink or deleting an interlink and uh, a specific entity for an interlink as well as um, the NOSCPROV has justification, so providing the why behind you why you created a certain link. Um, this results in a graph such as this, where you would have who created the interlink, so here it's myself, um, what you use to create the interlink, so the NOSC framework, my role within the organization, what organization I'm part of, um, as well as the interlink itself and the rationale behind why I linked those two items in the way that I did. Um, so hopefully uh, users of the information would feel uh, more trust in the information and more likely to use it and more likely to perhaps ingest your uh, data into their system and are linked to your data um, because you've provided this information. Um, so in order to evaluate NOSC, um, I conducted a usability test of the graphical user interface. Um, participants were 15 information professionals and the usability test consisted of four parts. Uh, the first was a pre-test questionnaire, so this was kind of just getting uh, an idea of who the participant was and what their experience with linked data and the semantic web was. The second was a think aloud observation. So basically this involved the user completing eight separate interlinking tasks uh, using the graphical user interface. Um, and uh, they were thinking aloud during it, which means they were speaking about what they were finding easy, what they were finding difficult, um, giving their sort of feedback as the uh, process was happening. Um, it also allowed me to kind of pick up on areas that were easy to use and not so easy to use. Um, the third part was a post-test interview. Um, this consisted of getting, again, feedback from the user about what they thought about um, each different component of the framework. And finally, we used the uh, Pursuit questionnaire. Um, this uh, gave a, a standardized uh, usability and utility uh, testing score uh, for the interface itself. Uh, results, um, so the overall impression, uh, users found that NOSC was easy and pleasant to use and that as they became used to the system, the ease and speed of use increased. Um, positives, uh, they found that the RDF graphs of the interlink and provenance data added to their understanding of the interlinking process. Uh, challenges, the process of adding URIs to a link set was initially confusing. Um, it also took a lot of time, so it's quite a manual process at the moment. So something we could be looking at in the future is suggesting, automatically suggesting, um, based on the resource that you've chosen to interlink, being able to suggest resources that could be of interest. Um, at the moment, that's manual. You have to kind of go through the databases yourself and add um, that into the system. Um, Link type selection, the participants found that the definitions for each of the link types um, was useful for deciding on how to express the relationship between two URIs. Um, however, we need a bit more examples to help the users to be able to create those relationships, um, especially beyond the kind of the ones that are well known, like same as and RDFC also. We need to kind of give them a little bit more information to help uh, create uh, the other types of relationships. And usefulness, um, participants stated that NOSH could be useful for creating interlinks between internal and external resources. Um, however, they did express concerns about how NOSH could be integrated into their current cataloging systems and workflows. So at the moment, NOSH is a standalone uh, tool. Um, however, again, in the future, we could look at how that could be tied into the different um, software that, um, that, that's been used in the library.
Um, so based on this, our future directions, um, we've used the user feedback already to, to further develop NOSC. Um, and based on this, once, uh, I think in about a month's time, we'll be finished our, our third prototype and we'll conduct further usability testing. Again, we'll modify that based on the results. And finally, we hope to conduct a field test um, in a number of libraries, um, probably around Dublin, um, or if any of you are interested, of course, um, and to get some real feedback from uh, information professionals uh, you know, who are actually truly using it beyond just me giving them assigned tasks, really using it with their data, and as well to get user feedback from um, the data users. So are these interlinks actually useful for them? Are they getting more information? Um, are their searches less complex and less time, less time consuming? Um, so yes, uh, as I mentioned, I need your feedback. So um, please, if you have any interest in uh, doing a user evaluation of uh, the NOSC tool, um, I'd love you to come, you can speak to me and sign up to participate, um, or um, you can uh, email me here. And uh, there's more information about NOSC. I have a demo, there's a link to my demo there that you can see online. Um, and there's also um, an article as well from JCDL uh, this year. That's everything. Thank you. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Lucy, for the excellent presentation. Uh, we have we have questions. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you very much. Where do I sign up? Um, so I represent uh, the consortium of the European Research Libraries, and we have several data sets that are related materials. Um, some of them we are now publishing as linked open data, and we were struggling precisely with this in, in how to interlink the various uh, linked open data sets. Now, can I ask, is the link type, is that something that you can define uh, as to sorts of data that you're dealing with? Yeah, so at the moment, um, like, you can uh, ingest any number of ontologies that you'd like to use. Um, so at the moment, I have uh, Dublin Core, um, Open Vocabularies, um, OWL, RDFS, you know, the kind of usual ones, but you can add different ontologies that you can uh, create those different link types, and then you can feed in from that kind of natural language selection, you know, which um, link type would be most appropriate to represent the kind yes. of relationship that you want to choose. Okay, I've also got a nasty question. <coughs> so how scalable is it? Because one of our data sets is millions, the other isn't quite so big, but we would like to connect the two. Um, at the moment, it's still uh, quite a, in a prototype kind of stage, so I'm only dealing with small data sets, but um, always open to, you know, if there's a room to collaborate or, you know, work with something, then <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, yeah, um, you know, we can see what we can do. Yeah, for sure. Yes, fantastic. Uh, any other questions? Uh, I have a question. Um, does the uh, does the linking system prevent you from doing uh, silly things like uh, saying that this is distinct from that when there already exists a, 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 a same as relation between the uh, two resources or something like that? So if you've, say, created a same as between A and B and then you try and say that they're different. Yeah. Um, at the moment, we just have... So you can only... Uh, 
yes and no. So you have your two resources, A and B, um, and it prevents you from entering them multiple times. So you'll be able to see that you've already created a same as relationship between them. So in order to create a distinct from, you'd have to do that looking straight at the same as one. So I suppose it's kind of protecting it, but it doesn't exactly have a warning. But that's a, it's definitely something we could consider adding for sure. Yeah, thank you. Uh, if there are no further questions, uh, let's thank Lucy one, once more. And uh, for our for our third presentation, uh, we have uh, uh, John Dowd uh, presenting mining for Europe, uh, and uh, it's a uh, well. We are on the on the cusp of something very very exciting when it comes to data mining, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, go ahead. Slight delay, technical problem. Okay. Trying to close it down. Thanks very much and apologies for the delay in starting. Um, my name is John Dowd, I'm from the University of Birmingham Library Services, though it's always good to start um, by getting things off your chest um, and uh, I have a confession to make, I shouldn't be standing here at all in front of you. Uh, it's my colleague Alex Fenlon, uh, who's our Head of Copyright and Licensing, who put the abstract in, the paper in. Uh, and, uh, but, um, so I very much feel like this is slightly what is termed in rugby terms as a hospital pass. Uh, I don't know if you are familiar with rugby. I have a son, teenage son who's a rugby player. He's a, um, he's a, a number 11, he's a winger. And a, a hospital pass, the phrase the hospital pass means that in the scrum and the ball gets thrown out, it gets thrown out along the wing. And my son usually adds a winger, grabs the ball and heads for glory. Um, but with a highly, highly big chance that they're going to get heavily tackled and crunched because as the ball comes out, they're standing in front of a wall. So um, I'm making that, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm raising that uh, just in terms of the Q&A session as uh, I might be doing the dash out. But anyway, on to the topic. Uh, just for context, uh, library services, um, the three, uh, the, the, the organisational structure, there are three uh, key pillars in the centre. Uh, there's traditional organisational uh, operational configurations, there's academic engagement which includes uh, research skills uh, and, uh, and skills for students, um, there's library customer support and there, there's collection management and development. On the far left hand, on the far right hand side, uh, we, uh, library services also incorporate special collections which is the Cadbury's Research Library uh, which does have relevance to, to this presentation. And finally, on the far left-hand side, uh, recently uh, library services have taken over the, the centralised management of all teaching space, uh, centrally booked teaching space within the university, which is a bit of a theme in the UK. Uh, so this is the area that we're focusing on, um, and there are four units below. Um, one of them is copyright and licensing. 
Alex and his team are responsible for copyright and licensing support, which includes researchers, academics and students. Other team's members are notably Scholarly Communication Services and Collection Developments, responsible for the acquisition of our content, both print and e. Both Alex and his counterparts, parts, the two respective heads, work side by side when it comes to procuring electronic content and reviewing licensing arrangements to ensure that agreements are fit for purpose. Data mining is now one of those purposes, ensuring licensed content can be mined, or at least the licenses do not place restrictions on mining activity. This is now a key component of the license review process, and we have been proactive in challenging a number of restrictive licenses clause for some time, with limited success, ranging from removal of clauses to including clauses about compliance with local copyright provisions through to some suppliers denying it is legal. So, the question that Alex wants to pose, is it possible for all EU university libraries, research organisations, cultural heritage organisations, to extract all content from all licensed e-resource platforms and make the data available for text and data mining? In recent years, text and data mining activities have become more visible to us and the volume of queries Alex's teams fields have increased. With the change in UK law, the UK law here is the, uh, the memorable Copyright and Designs and Patents Act 1988, uh, was amended in 2014 providing a TDM exception. Uh, and all those coming to, at an EU level, specifically the Digital Single Market Directive. The prevalence is likely to increase further. This increase in, increase in activity, impending change in law, and other developments led Alex to start thinking and leading internal discussions about TDM and the library's role. Of course, that is a huge question and there are many elements and sub-questions that spring from it, which this presentation will hopefully cover. How much content are we talking about? Even with the legal changes, even with the changes in law, licenses, use of APIs, etc., is it even legal? We have noticed that some suppliers include their APIs within the license arrangements and others offer them as chargeable extras. We rarely seek to include APIs within license deals, something to consider perhaps. If it is, is it technically possible to harvest, store and analyse that much data? How much would that cost? Would our researchers actually want what we're proposing? Of course, there is another question. It is, is it the library's role to do all of this? Uh, and I'll end the presentation uh, with just two short slides um, outlining our small steps uh, at Birmingham in response. So the first question, how much content? Uh, in terms of starting small and looking outwards, um, these are the figures for the University of Birmingham Library Services. Um, they, they demonstrate the size and the scale. In addition to the usual collections, some years ago, we took advantage of offers from some of the suppliers and purchased a number of hard drives containing copies of online collections, specifically to enable text and data mining to take place locally. We have 25 of these sitting in our on-site storage facility, the Research Reserve, which is uh, within the main library and uh, providing about 50 kilometres of shelving. Well, I think they're in there somewhere just gathering dust, but more on those later. If we look at the UK perspective, 
uh, and we look at the uh, Sconnell statistics, so the Society of College, National and University Libraries annual statistics for 1617. It highlights that the UK libraries contain almost 92 million printed items, but more importantly, it subscribes to or licenses over 48 million e-books and 7.5 million serials. Repositories contain at least 1.1 million, 1 .1 million items that are available to external users. The volume of UK content alone is significant. If we look at international content, repositories, those figures skyrocket. 23 million items in unpaywalled, the core repository holding 13 million, Europeana at almost 59 million items. The archival services of Clocks and Portugal hold 33 and 105 million items respectively. What if we expand this to the, each of the 28 member states of the EU, including the UK for a few months? And, oh, no, 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 I was waiting for a response in there. Um, and all the jurisdictions with a Libra presence. How much content, how much content would our researchers have legal access to? The figures represent just the content that is available under open access, or that which has been subscribed to by our respective institutions. Clearly, the open web holds a significant amount more than we do. I'm sure colleagues are no stranger to the long-winded and somewhat controversial new EU copyright legislation that was approved recently, the Digital Single Market Directive. It came into force in June and, and uh, Member States uh, need to put it into their national law by June 2021. The DSM itself contains two articles focused uh, on TDM, Articles 3 and 4. Article 3 on the screen uh, is for research and cultural heritage institutions and allows for mining for scientific research purposes to be carried out on, co on the content the miner has lawful access to. Rights holders are entitled to ensure such activity doesn't impact on the stability of their platforms. Article 4 is for TDM by anyone on any, any content provided they have lawful access to the content and mining hasn't been prevented by the rights holders. This has seen an encouragement for commercial AI, big data type projects and innovative industries. It should be noted that Article 7 also contains a carve out that says that scientific TDM clause, Article 3, cannot be prevented by contract license except, of course, if it breaches the bit about platform stability. So Article 7 means that we can ignore any contractual clauses that TDM, for, for TDM if Article 3 applies. However, this doesn't apply to the commercial version of this exception. I've already referenced about the, the, the UK Act. Um, this has already uh, allows the UK uh, to enable computational analysis for non-commercial purposes. It, all it also contains a no-contract override, subsection 5, but there is no mention in the text of legislation about right holders being able to protect the stability of their platforms. The first sub-question, or the second sub-question, -sub is it legal? There is a legislative framework that is coming into force the key elements seem to be around the, the notion of legal access. While staff at 1HE with licensed access can use and mine the content, 
if a fellow, fellow researcher's institution doesn't have the subscription, they cannot, do not, acquire legal access simply by researcher one sharing the data. What is then the impact on research collaboration and scholarly sharing across institutions? The second, sorry, the second aspect of the legal question relates to the purpose of the mining. Given, I think given the audience and our research community, this should be, shouldn't pose as, as a problem. I think scientific should be read the European way in that all, in that all academic research is covered, not just those in the physical sciences or the medics. Moving on, from skills we've seen from data and volume of content already available, already storage is going to be an issue. Remote access, oh, sorry, I do apologise. Sorry, the third and fourth question, is it technically possible? And would our researchers want it? Alex's team have encountered numerous queries from academic researchers keen to engage, but their skill level varies usually. Some view writing a script to crawl a website the same I might see as writing an email. They spend all day doing it and see it as nothing. Well, whereas others, less technically capable, will struggle. You probably can't see the code on the right, but to me, it might as well be in Dutch or German or any, indeed, any European language other than English. Coding languages are not just languages that need, learn, that need learning and understanding. Some of us are linguistics, others, myself included, are not. This is true for, for, for researchers mining. Some will not struggle, struggle to use the APIs and tools offered by suppliers' platforms. Others will be intimidated by the sight of even the most basic of code. To enable mining, researchers will need the space, the time and support to engage in the new techniques. If they can't or won't, do libraries need to provide the resources to support to ensure the research questions do not go unanswered? Even where a researcher is able to query an API, other issues arise. Are they suitable, stable and sufficient? Do they provide access to the full data set or do they query a limited subset of the data? Many APIs are now chargeable and come with the license conditions attached, which limit the reuse of research outputs. In a world with research data mandates from funders, a drive for open science and fair principles, how do these license restrictions fit? There is a trade-off between the convenience and ease of, ease of the ready-made chargeable API and the custom code developments. Moving on from skills, we've seen from the data and volume of content already available, storage is going to be an issue. Remote access, authentication, data security, data breaches, preservation, compliance with funder mandates and open science objectives all arise when we look at what infrastructure may need to be in place to facilitate mining activities. Of course, metadata quality, OCR and other issues arise too. However, with, the rapid, with, the, with rapid internet connections, stable APIs and cloud storage, do we even need local solutions anymore? And the final question, do researchers want it? University of Birmingham researchers regularly engage in data mining, text mining, textual analysis, information retrieval 
and numerous other terms that es essentially involve the analysis of data, documents, corpora, websites, statistics, anything by computers to identify patterns, reasoning, knowledge. They may not know it as TDM, but it would still fall under the exception. We know at Birmingham our researchers are interested in data mining. The slide shows some examples uh, of, from all of our five colleges spanning the full range of the disciplines offered at Birmingham. These come across from across, sorry, the screen. These come from across the whole researcher life cycle, from a new PhD students still posing their research question, and from senior professors looking to engage in the next world leading research projects. Which leads us on to the role of the library and the University of Birmingham. At, at UOB, we have researchers who are miners, even if they don't call it mining. We had, we've had a couple of new senior researchers join us recently, and they've brought with them their mining projects, and research groups have grown around them. We've even had researchers request um, information and access to the dusty hard drives down in our research reserve. Of course, when loaning the drives, the issues about security, data loss, single user access, and compliance with licenses legislation arise. More than that, the drives came from the US, and we had to buy US to UK plugs to enable them to be used. Another hidden cost of data mining. Alex is leading a project, TDM at BHAM, our first steps as a library service to build a TDM service offer. Phase one started in the spring, and we were mounting, we, we selected one research group uh, who had an interest in one of the hard drives, and we mounted the drive on our research infrastructure. We wanted to use this, as this is where researchers store their data. It, will, it, will, it is there, it is where it will end up anyway. Researchers are familiar with it, they use it, and they know how it functions. We took the data to their space. The infrastructure service is also secure and maintained by a team supporting University of Birmingham wide activity at scale. There are mature, mature access me mechanisms and workflows, all of which were not in place when the drive sat on the shelf gathering dust. We have, we have the data mounted and are beginning our first wave of communications, reaching out to those we know are interested in the data set and promoting it to others. We'll be testing the mechanism and workflows put in place to see if they might function well at scale. We'll also be looking to evaluate the processes. We can't have a library project without evaluation. Phase two, post-Christmas, we'll start to look at other services and tools and solutions, training and guidance materials that may be available outside of the university. We'll look at publisher-provided solutions to the mining questions such as Gale Digital Scholar Lab. We'll engage with and work with our researchers to ask them what they want and what they need, what they use and what they would like to use. We'll use this to establish what is or isn't possible, legally or technically, and hopefully come up with something that we can provide. It might be, however, that we would want to play a it might be, however, that they would want a full mining environment complete with everything necessary for them to plug in with their data. At this stage, we're excited to find out which rituals, 
we might uncover ourselves. And on that positive note, with our, our eyes to the future, I'll say thank you. On behalf of myself and Alex. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, we have ample time for questions. Are there any? Uh, well, while you're coming up with, with, with some, uh, I have a question. Uh, is it, um, or, uh, well, first of all, a, a, a leading question uh, in that, uh, is it a surefire thing that, that this, uh, this exemption from the, uh, for, for the uh, data mining will come to pass? Uh, yeah, the directive has been set, so EU countries now have two years to comply. UK, the UK and France had earlier exceptions already in force. Ah, yes. With the TDM initiative at Birmingham, do you also try to get all the element of the negotiations for licenses also into that? I mean, we do it for e-resources where TDM is always the thing where we say, we can't come to an agreement, please do it with this singular researcher because we are hitting brick wall after brick wall. Yeah, I, I, it's a similar experience that we're having. What we're trying to do is negotiate for, 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 for licenses, but where need be, we'll, we'll act as an intermediary and support individual researchers in terms of getting access to the, access to the content for mining. But yes, it's a, a standard problem. And I think where we have, we have a legislative framework coming into force now, but we also have a, a commercial drive as well that both parties will now have to start to negotiate and navigate in, which I think is the changing landscape. I, I think the killer argument we always face, with, with especially with publishers, is that for some forms of natural language processing, you can actually reconstruct the text rather simply. Yeah. And that's where they say, of course, that the risk is too high. Yeah, absolutely. Any other questions? Oh, yes. <coughs> Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, in this process of uh, making the EU uh, legislation coming into your national legislation, how, how have you considered how to influence that process? Uh, in terms of at a national scale? Yes. Uh, good question, and no, we haven't. Okay. It's a short reply to that. Yeah, I, it's, it's, I, I think it's something that, um, that uh, our UK national organisations um, such as uh, Scannell, et cetera, could start to play a role in, which individual libraries should play a role in. I would, I would assume that they would start to play that role as, as, as now, now the directive has been approved. But June's an early start, so, but I think it, they will have, a, I think it's not individual universities, but it's at a consortia or a national level that the influence will be. Okay, thank you. Thank you, John, and, uh, and, and a huge thank you to, to everyone who was present for this session. Uh, we are quite a bit ahead of schedule, which means that if you, are uh, if you are going to the meeting of participants, you will have the very best seats possible. <laughs> 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 and uh, 
So yes, uh, enjoy the rest of the conference and um, thank you.